0: Uh, And so it's not that uh, as in our culture, well, take whatever road you want, that is okay. No, you take the Jesus road, that is the only road that has any chance of leading you to the Father. But on the Jesus road, there are different paces, there are different stopping places, and there are kind of different ways to go on that road. But you can't get there on the Buddhist road, you can't get there on the Hindu road, you can't get there on the I do my best and God will understand road. None of those work because, as I said, the commands of Scripture are the house rules. I can't say, well, you know, me and my girlfriend, we're just a little different than most people. God will understand why we're living together. No, He won't. He quite clearly says that's, you know, back to like with my brother and I. uh, My dad might have loved the sports I played and the involvement in that and the long conversations about the world and politics and all those sort of things. But I want to tell you, I miss curfew. We have a little come-to-Jesus meeting in that house. <laughs> and, and so I, I didn't have that opportunity. So I keep saying that. I just want you to keep hearing that. When I am uh, talking about helping people find their own road, it's still their own road within the confines of the house rules, which are spelled out in Scripture, and begin with Jesus being the only way. And from that point, move out to the black and whites. But here's the irony. We never argue about the black and whites. You know why we never argue about the black and whites? Precisely because they're black and white. There's nothing to argue about. So I have to prove my superiority by moving into the gray areas. And then I can show I'm more intelligent or more committed or or whatever. And the Apostle Paul actually makes mention of that in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, well, of course you have to fight over these things, or, or else how else could you show your superiority? And he's being incredibly sarcastic in this one little section there where he's ripping on them because they, they fight over not the important things, but they fight over all the, the, the side things. But having said that, let's talk about how we grow. And then I want to uh, kind of uh, do a flyby of some of the areas where we've picked up some goofy thinking that really doesn't match up with Scripture. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of a, a fun look at some of the things that we've heard forever, but really don't match up in this book. But first of all, how do we grow? Uh, the, the first thing that I think is important as, as you think through whatever group of people you're trying to mentor and disciple is, remember this, that when it comes to spiritual growth, it is seldom linear. We talked about this yesterday with some of the staff. Spiritual growth is seldom linear. If you were to look back on your own spiritual growth, my bet is that you did not go A, B, C, D, E, F, all the way through. That you took A, Then you went over to F, and then you went to D, then we went back to C, then you went to R. That, In reality, we all eventually end up taking kind of the same spiritual courses, but we take them in really different order. But when it comes to the way we do church often, we lay out a very linear pattern because it's easier to administrate, because the people who put those programs together often are linear people, and then we give them to the people we're trying to disciple, and they don't follow that path real well. The truth of the matter is, our growth points, if you were to look back in your own life, you'd find this, and this is what you want to watch for in the people you're working with. Our growth points are usually centered around a need to know or a need to grow moment. Life hits us with a need to know or a need to grow moment. Like I said, as you look back, I think you'll see this in your own life, and as you look forward with the people you're you're working with, that's what you're looking for. Is there a need to know or a need to grow moment right now? And sometimes there's a long lull between them. But boy, when they hit, it's time. God's, God's on the move. He's going to do something. What's a need-to-know moment? Well, a need-to-know moment, uh, I, I like to illustrate it if you have a, a new Christian, and you, you put them in a Christianity 101 course, you tell them, you know, 66 books in the Bible, you tell them about the Trinity, and you, you lay all these basics, which is fine. What else are you going to tell them? And they put them out on a little note sheet and have a little notebook about being a Christian but it doesn't mean a whole lot until they go to work and the person in the cubicle next to them says, oh, you don't understand, Jesus wasn't God. They've got a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness next to them who starts to point out that Jesus isn't really God and all this other stuff, and then suddenly, guess what? They need to know what does the Bible say about who Jesus is. And they learn at a completely different level when they need to know. And life sometimes puts us in situations where something we've heard a million times but hasn't meant anything suddenly comes face to face with a different opinion and our hunger for Scripture, where does it say that, what does it mean, just goes off the charts. That's what you want to be ready for with people. Now, a need to grow moment happens not around information, but it happens around hardship usually. You hit a wall and you suddenly need to grow in some area of your life. I always use the illustration of now 11 years ago when my wife nearly died of cancer. We had young kids. Uh, it was just, everything was going bad. It was one of those series of things where you go to the doctor, some of you have gone through, they say, it, well, it could be this or that, but don't worry, it's probably this. Then the test comes back, it's that. Oh, don't worry, it could be this or that, then the test comes back. It's that. It just, everything kept going from don't worry to worse and worse and worse and worse at one point. Well, in that situation, what did Nancy and I need to grow in? Trust. Understanding the sovereignty of God. See, up till then, I was a pastor. I taught the sovereignty of God. I knew it in my head. But I had never needed to grow in the acceptance of the sovereignty of God when it's doing exactly the opposite of what I want. And boom, I took off. And Nancy, boom, she took off. And we grew in that area. We needed to grow in our patience with people. God used that to help us understand how to help hurting people. Because prior to that, I, we, neither of us had been in such deep weeds that, you know, we just needed comfort only. Because you know what happens when somebody's hurting? <laughs> we tend to give them tracks, right? And, and advice. And, I mean, it's amazing the goofy things we got. You know, uh, the, the people's idea of comforting us didn't follow the Apostle Paul. It says, weep with those who weep. What they decided to do was send us emails, And including those emails were links to special diets that would cure her cancer and uh, this and that and all these things that unintentionally also basically said, you brought it on yourself. Uh, That's not what anybody meant to say, but that's kind of what came. And, And out of that, boy, Nancy and I learned at a whole new level how to be comforting to people that are going through very deep and difficult times. Couldn't have learned it. And there was no way I could have signed up to learn that 10 years earlier. Life just happens. And with the people you're working with, that's how it's going to go. So, what you always want to be looking for is a need to know and a need to grow moment. And other than that, you just kind of are relaxing. You're, you're, you're like a guard on duty. Uh, if, if you're in the middle, we're we're down by Camp Pendleton in San Diego. If you're on duty, you really aren't uh, having a problem all the time. You're sitting there waiting for a problem, and then you're prepared to deal with it. And much of spiritual formation, the lives of people you and I uh, deal with, is not going to be hyper-exciting, it's not going to be hyper-growth all the time, it's just going to be sentry duty, but on the alert. So then that need-to-know and that need-to-grow moment happens, boom, we can jump right into it. The second thing about how we grow is what I call the dimmer switch principle. It's a powerful principle. You see, both, uh, and it's like this, spiritual light uh, works like a dimmer switch. And when we obey the light we have, God takes His hand and He turns it up and gives us more. And when we disobey the light we have, God puts His hand on it and turns it down. And I'll just give you some references for this. The first one about turning it down is found in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18-32. Uh, through 32. Romans one 18 to 18-32. And it talks about the downward spiral of a culture. That because they ignored the light they already had, God gave them over to greater darkness. And then they ignored what they already knew, and He gave them over to greater darkness. And there's this whole description of a culture that once knew about God intuitively and comes to the point where they know nothing about God. That's the dimmer switch being turned down. The dimmer switch being turned up is found in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And it says this, it says, The pathway of the righteous is like the rising of the noonday sun. And any of you that have ever gone out uh, camping uh, and, and happen to wake up early in the morning, uh, you, you realize uh, as, as the sun is just coming up or even right before, you can't see very well at night. And the reason you can't see well at night is, is your night vision is equivalent to your peripheral vision. There is no color and no significant depth perception to it. But as you get a little, and little, uh, little more light and a little more light, things begin to take on form. You begin to see nuances. You begin to see shapes. You begin to see color. And by the noonday, you see everything. (coughs) In Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, I I have a story about uh, Yosemite. Growing up, we'd go to Yosemite every single year. And uh, probably a lot of you have been up there, and you know how they have little boulders around it. And kids love to jump from rock to rock. You know how that routine goes. Well, when I was in college, my buddy and I went up and we were camping at uh, uh, Yosemite, And I I had to go to the restroom uh, right before the the sun came up and I I kind of went back to my childhood and I was jumping off from one little boulder to the next little boulder to sort of thing and I, I saw one and I started to like take it and leap on it and it moved and I went oh my goodness and I realized it was a little cub which means mama was somewhere around I wouldn't be talking to you had I done that probably Well, that's going to happen right before the sun comes up or as it's coming up. Is that going to happen at 11 in the morning or noon? No way. Because with more light, I would see all the details. I wouldn't mistake that for a rock. I'd see it as a, a, I'd be crystal clear. That's how spiritual truth goes. That when you and I obey the light we have, God turns it up higher and higher and higher. When we disobey the light we have, why would he give us more? Little sidebar, by the way. That's why it's so hard to pray for God's will to know something in one area when I'm disobedient in, in another area. I, I love it down in our church. You know, we, we have a lot of spiritual window shoppers come to North Coast. And, and you know, some couple will be uh, living together, as I, I mentioned earlier, and then they'll come to me and and they'll say, well, we're really trying to figure out if it's God's will for us to get married. <laughs> I go, you think he's going to tell you whether it's, His will for you to get married when you've already told him you don't care what his will is for your sexuality? Why would he bother? The light gets turned down more and more. That Proverbs verse ends. It not only says the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter until it's like the noonday sun where you see everything, but the next verse says, but the path of the wicked is like darkness. They don't even see the hole they fall into. The dimmer switch principle. That has made me relax with new Christians. Because I've realized I don't have to teach a new Christian everything. I just have to take them where they are and help them obey it. It's also relaxed me when it comes to how much Bible do I got to get into. My goal is to get the whole Word of God into people. But I always start with where they are. And a lot of us don't need to know more as much as we need to do what we already know. And it's made discipleship such a much easier thing. Let's just start with what God has seen. And let's just turn that dimmer switch up a little bit more. So I'm in one of our growth groups, and somebody is, is uh, you know, totally, I'm sure you have it in your life groups and things, somebody totally misquotes the Bible or gets it all goofed up or whatever it would be. It's, I, I don't really care if they got the reference right as long as they got the neighborhood and that they're obeying what they know because I've learned God always turns it up. And then the third thing about how we really grow is that it's a work of God. The Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out, and ultimately, there's nothing we can do from the outside to force it to happen. As a spouse, I can't make my spouse grow. As a father, I can't make my kids grow. As a pastor, I can't make my congregation grow. I can present them light, I can help them obey the light they have, but ultimately, it's the inside out work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus Christ said this bizarre statement. He said, you realize when I leave, it's going to be better for you that I'm gone than when I'm here? Do you remember that passage some of you? Like, how strange is that? Well, let me explain why that was true. Because when Jesus Christ did all of His ministry, He did it under the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's why even He said, you you say my miracles of of Satan, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What Jesus did, He said, is I listened to the Spirit to tell me the words of the Father and I give them. So apparently Jesus in uh, His humanity sat aside His divinity. He was totally God, but didn't use it. And He essentially lived as a man without sin nature, listening to the Spirit. And His miracles were of the Spirit. His wisdom was of the Spirit. Uh, all that. So when Jesus was around, you had the Holy Spirit right there when you were in proximity of Jesus. But when He went to the next town, you were stuck with just the things He said you remembered. But you and I've got it great. Because he can't go, you know, he he can't go to Bakersfield now. And if he went to Bakersfield, it's like, it's cool because he's still inside of me. And that's why it's a huge advantage. But it's amazing when it comes to spiritual formation how quickly we forget what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. And the dimmer switch principle and the fact that the Spirit's gonna do his stuff and that it comes when I when people need to know or need to grow, all of those things together have helped me learn to relax and deal with the obvious instead of constantly create this pressure, this pressure, this pressure, and end up with a church full of people who experience a twitch because they have so many drive-by guiltings. And I think if we're honest, that's, you know, at the well, you guys have done a great job, but you take churches around America, one of the problems is there's a lot of drive-by guiltings because we haven't learned to relax. We've tried to make everybody instantly deep Instantly mature, instantly full of knowledge. So that's how we grow. But let's take a look at some of the things that uh, are, I don't know, to me a little more relaxing, if you will. Here's one. When I I talk about faith, think of faith. How many of you would agree with this statement, we need more of it? Help me out. How many of you say, no, we don't need more of it? couple of you brave souls okay the standard line is we're always trying to get people to have more faith right and let's think about it for a moment what what do we mean when we try to get people we're wanting to help grow in the lord to have more faith what we really mean is we want them to think more positively right we say, you've got to have more faith. That really means you shouldn't worry. You should think more positively. You should imagine the best outcome. You should do all these sort of things. And here's a surprise from the Scripture. Do you know that's, that's an American definition of faith, not a biblical definition of faith? The biblical definition of faith has nothing to do with your imagination or your absence of doubt. It has everything to do with your obedience. The Lord tells us we have to have faith He doesn't tell us we have to have tons of faith. Because faith is obedience. And the little bit of obedience filled with doubt still gets everything done. I'm going to give you a life principle and then a biblical look. Um, I have to fly a lot. So I'm one of these guys that have absolutely no worry when I get on a plane. I could practically fall asleep while the thing is taken off. So, I, I get on the plane, I take out my iPod, you know, click on whatever music I want, as soon as they allow us, you know, hit that height where you can do it, and kind of kick back, pull out a couple of things I want to read or whatever, and boom, we go off. I don't even have the slightest worry. In fact, I tend to be so confident, I, I don't even like pray anymore, you know. So, I remember the first flight, Lord, get me home, you know. So that's when you know you're really confident. You're just kind of like, oh, whatever. Well, every time I, you get on a plane, there's somebody there who hasn't flown. Or scared to death. The last time I flew, two seats over from me was this gal. She was about 22 years old. Her brother was at Camp Pendleton. She was flying across the country. She had never flown before. And she was so scared she never did put all her weight down. She was like. Now, she had enough faith to get into the plane, but she was sure it was going to go down. I had so much faith I could fall asleep on the runway. It didn't matter for either of us because the only thing that mattered was whether the plane was good, right? If the plane was bad, with all of my confidence, oh, don't worry, honey, it'll be okay. It's just, you know, it's always bumpy like that or whatever it is I say. If the plane goes into the ground, I go into the ground with all my confidence. And if the plane is, is quality and makes it there, she makes it there with all of her fear. The faith is not what decides whether something works. It's the one you have your faith in that decides whether it works. And the tiniest bit of faith filled with doubt in Jesus that says, okay, I'm going to do what he said to do, or in this illustration, I'm going to get on the plane, guess what it does? It gets you there. And what we have done often with our people, especially when they're going through difficulty, we've tried to get them to be more optimistic, more up, more uh, getting rid of fear instead of the only thing we have to do, which is to get them to obey. Now let me show you. I told you from, from Scripture, I, I'd show you where that uh, comes from. Look over at Luke 17. In Luke 17, Jesus is talking to His uh, uh, followers about forgiveness. And he kind of lays down the gauntlet in verse 3. He says, now watch yourselves. If your brother sins, you rebuke him. And if he repents, turns around, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in just one day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to him, Lord, increase our faith. What are they saying there? Lord, seven times in one day. There is no way I can do that. You, you've, you've got to give us more trust, more pistou is the Greek word there, more, more trust in you, more, more faith, so that we can do this thing that makes absolutely no sense. So they say, will you increase or give us more faith? And here's what Jesus says. Guys, if you have faith as small as a what? Talk to me. Mustard seed. Now, a lot of you here at the Guild, you've been well taught enough to know. What a mustard seed was, was that a big thing? That was the smallest thing they knew of back then, right? They, they, it was their colloquial phrase for the tiniest of the tiny. So the Lord says, if you have the tiniest of the tiny, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it'll obey you. Basically, they're saying, give us more faith, and Jesus blows them off. He says, dude, you've got plenty of faith. You have all the faith you need. You just need to do what I told you to do. But before we obey, we often think we have to be more convinced it will work. We have to be more confident. And Jesus comes back and he says, I don't care whether you think this is the dumbest idea ever. I told you to do it. You've got enough to throw a mulberry tree into the sea. Just forgive him. Acts chapter 12, a great story of it. Too long a story for us to read right now, but, but James and Peter are in prison. Now this is a story of faith. James gets his head cut off, not exactly what the early church was expecting. Herod sees this work, so he says, you know what, everybody's pretty happy, I think I'm going to do Peter tomorrow. So as they're doing that, the night before he's to be killed, Peter falls asleep. And over in John Mark's house, there's a prayer meeting that he would be released from heaven, uh, from heaven, from death and jail. So an angel comes to Peter, as you read Acts 12, and he kicks Peter in the side to wake him up, and he says, come with me. So Peter comes with him. Now, If Peter had been a great man of faith, imagining, you know, God's going to come through. I'm totally confident. I've got all this. Peter, when the angel kicked him and woke him up, would have gone, hey, uh, what took you so long? I was expecting you to be here. But instead, it says Peter just kind of put on his clothes. He walked along. The gate's open. He goes out. and, And when he's finally out in the city street, it says Peter realized this is not a dream. Don't miss that. God is answering his prayer. And when God answers his prayer, he thinks, oh, great, now I'm having a dream the night before I die. He has no sense of, "Well, oh, I expected it, I imagined it, I was totally there, but Peter was just being obedient to, like, submitting to whatever God had in his life, and it's only when he gets on the street, he realizes, oh, my goodness, this is real. That sounds pretty mustard-seedy to me. And then he goes over to the house, and he starts to knock on the door where they're having the prayer meeting that he would get out of prison. And as he knocks, a little servant girl named Rhoda runs up and, and peeks through and goes, oh, it's Peter. And she runs back and she tells everybody, Peter's at the door. Now, what are they doing? They're praying that what? Peter gets out of prison. So they are such men and women of faith that when Peter's at the door and Rhoda says he's there, they say, oh, pff, it can't be him. They must have killed him early. It's his ghost. Right? And then it's real. Now, I don't know about you, that's the kind of faith I experience a whole lot. Where I am obeying, completely convinced, this sucker ain't going to work. But American Christianity has taught me that's not what God wants. It's taught me God wants me confident. The reason God answered their prayer was not because they imagined God was going to do it, not because they had no doubt, not because they had no fear. The reason God answered their prayer was because they prayed. Back to the beginning thing I said today, spirituality is about obedience, and we've turned it into feelings and a whole bunch of other things. Another example of that is the old uh, Shadrach, Meshach, or as we said in my house when the kids were a little Shadrach, Meshach, to bed we go, you know, the three little guys in, uh, in Daniel, and they were told to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, this, this uh, idol of him that had been made, and they said, we're not going to do that so he said if you don't do it i'm going to stoke up the fire here even hotter and you guys are all going to die so we don't care and then there's this great sunday school line we love to tell it to the kids and in that line they say our god is we will not bow down our god is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace now is that not a cool sunday school lesson especially when we know the end but we normally don't tell our kids the next line Because here's what they actually said. They didn't say, our God is able to deliver us from your fire, throw us in. They said, our God is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace. And even if he does not, we're not gonna bow down. And the truth of the matter is, they were probably the most surprised people when they were thrown in that furnace and didn't die. I can just see Meshach saying to Shadrach, Dude, we picked the wrong side. We're in the wrong place. You know, like, uh-oh, we're in hell. We're supposed to go to the other one. What ha- I mean, they had no clue. <laughs> like, whoops, wrong choice. And throughout history, has anybody else been thrown into a fire and lived? Talk to me. No. It was one example. They weren't spared because they imagined themselves being spared. They were spared because in the sovereignty of God, that was his plan. And they were approved because they obeyed just one example of how we've turned spirituality on its ears it's all about obedience and we've turned it into it's all about optimism all kinds of people beating themselves over the head because they're not optimistic enough they're not positive enough all god wants is obedience the more you learn that he comes through the more optimistic you get i love the story of abraham because Abraham starts out with doubts, and by the time he's asked to uh, sacrifice Isaac, he goes, oh, I don't know what God's going to do, raise him from the dead, whatever. But that wasn't the first step, that was the last step in an incredible journey. Or here's another one. Uh, if you got a Bible, uh, turn over to Revelation chapter 2. This was one of my early Christian constant drive-by guiltings. Revelation chapter 2. Because somehow, I picked up the idea that I needed to always be on fire and zealous for God. The same fire and zeal that I started out with, Anytime it began to wane a little bit, I wasn't quite as pumped up for God. I was just prone for a drive-by guilting. And the favorite passage to nail me with was what I call the You Lost That Love and Feeling passage. (laughs) The letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at it in just a second, but some of you are familiar with just the thing the Lord says, I have this one thing against you. You have lost your first what? Love. And, I, you know, and I'd always go, oh yeah, I'm just not as pumped up as I used to be. Now, I might be obedient as I'll get out. I'm just not pumped up anymore. Let's look at this passage and see what it really says. Again, time after time in Scripture, when you look closely at the things... That we think we're supposed to have we'll see the core is no we're just supposed to have obedience these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands so jesus says i know your deeds and they're totally wimped out is that what your bible says no you know the idea of having lost passion it's like let's read this these folks did not have they had not lost any passion I mean, these guys were on fire as fire can get. The Lord says, I know your deeds. Now notice what they're doing. He says, your hard work. That's pretty good. They're working their tail off for God. And your perseverance. They do not quit. Their theology. You cannot tolerate wicked men. And you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered. And you have endured hardship for my name, and you have not even grown weary. So let's just stop right there. That sounds to me like a pretty good group of people, doesn't it? I'd be pumped if that was a description of North Coast Church. You know, the Lord said, man, you guys work harder than everybody else. You never quit. You uh, don't put up with sin. You, you check doctrine out really well. You hang in there. You never grow weary. I mean, we had to be sending buses to find this church that's hardly a church that is no longer emotively connected or no longer zealous but we get confused the lord then in verse four says i hold this against you you have forsaken your first love and that's what we read it as you've lost that love and feeling but i'm going to run you through a little test and a lot of you here at the guild you know you know your bible well enough to know what is the great love passage in the bible Chapter what? 1 Corinthians what? 13, right? bunch of you had it at your wedding. It's the definition of agape love, right? And if it was used at a wedding or any teaching on it, people almost always say agape love is sacrificial love of putting the needs and the interests of others first, right? We point out it's not about how you feel, it's about what you do. In 1 Corinthians thirteen, love is patient, kind—you know—all that whole list. Those are all action words, that the Lord is calling us to sacrificially love, put the needs of interests of others uh, and the needs and interests of others above our own, and it's not about how you feel; it's about what you do. That, sermons on 1 Corinthians thirteen are all about that. Well, guess what? When Jesus says you have lost your first love. You have a clue what word for love he uses there? It's agape. The problem with the church in Ephesus was not they no longer had a little funny feeling in their tummy every time they had worship. The problem with the church of Ephesus is they were no longer like all pumped up. The problem with the church of Ephesus is they no longer were sacrificially loving one another and the lost they were on fire they were a zealous church they were a passionate church that's why they didn't give up that's why they checked doctrine that's why they didn't put up with sin that's why they worked harder than everybody else that's why they persevered but along the way they became zealous but unloving and so what does the lord tell them look at his statement next remember the height from which you have fallen and feel the way you did it first. Not what he says. Remember the height from which you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. What had they stopped doing? Loving the lost and loving one another. They had essentially become Pharisees, on fire for God, but absolutely missing God. We've circled back around to this theme that over and over you will find in the scriptures if you start putting the lenses on. Spirituality is about obedience. And we keep making it about something else. The spiritual one is the optimistic one. The spiritual one is the zealous one. And in each and every case, no, the spiritual one is the one, whether they feel like it or not, who does what God says. Whether they think it'll work or not does what God says. Whether they're pumped up or bored does what God says. They keep the house rules. Once again, that's a much easier spirituality to teach, isn't it? That's the spirituality that everybody can do. The 55% of guys that'll never read a book can obey the life they have. The, the person who's well-taught can obey the life they have. The person who's barely taught can obey the light they have. And as I said earlier, it has made it so easy for me as a pastor to know what I'm trying to do with my congregation. It has made our our team, it's made it so easy for them to know what they're trying to do with people. Just get them to obey. And as we do that, everything else begins to fall into place. But it's just too simple. So we move to something else. Let me just throw a couple of other things at you that some of you may have uh, felt and then we'll we'll, we'll end with that. One of the things I warn you about in your own life is what I call best practices overload. Best practices overload when it comes to spirituality. Because since it's really about obedience and that's too simple, we move to something else. What we often do is put all of our heroes up there. And Now, if I say best practice, some of you know what I mean by that, it's a business term. It means when you go and you check out the best practice of different businesses and you see if you can carry it over to yourself. Uh, the hospitality industry did it. Uh, years ago, it used to be, it'd take you forever to check in and check out of a hotel. So they went and they checked uh, the uh, rental car business and found out, how in the world did they check people in and out so quickly? Because you could check out your rental car quickly, and you could turn it in really quickly. And at least last I look, it's a lot easier to steal a car than a hotel room. Wouldn't you agree? And yet, when it came time to that hotel, it took forever. So they went and they found the best practices of, of, of the Avis and companies like that that, that uh, uh, ch- uh, checked it in and checked it out. And they said, let's do that into our hotel room. That's what best practices is. You go and see how somebody else does something. It's uh, General Mills, years ago, was trying to figure out how to turn its factories over faster uh, from uh, one kind of cereal to another. They, they knew all that they could know of themselves. They've checked out every other company. They said, there's got to be a faster way. So they went, who makes a changeover better than anybody else? And it dawned on them, NASCAR. In five seconds, they do what should take 15 minutes. So, they sent their executives to spend a week with a NASCAR pit crew to learn things about how to change their factory. And they actually came back and, and, and turned something that I think was like three days into 13 hours or something like that. I forget what it was, but the turnaround was amazing because they'd learned these best practices. It's a great way to run your business, any of you have a business. It's a cool way to run church as you learn things from other churches, it's a terrible way to do your spirituality. Because here's what happens. If we try to follow all the best practices of all the best Christians, we'll have a nervous breakdown. I learned this the hard way. As a zealous young Christian, I was so on fire for different people I saw. There was a guy named Billy Graham. And I thought, man, if I could only be an evangelist like Billy Graham, that would be so cool. Cool. Then i started studying the bible and there was a guy named calvin and if only i could know theology like calvin did that would be so cool and then someone introduced me to martin luther who was a prayer warrior to the point that whenever he had a very busy day a killer day what he did was he got up an hour or two earlier to pray more so now i'm sitting there trying to be how can i be billy graham How can I be Martin Luther? How can I be Calvin? And then Mother Teresa comes along. (laughs) And what I forgot was in the incredible strength of each of those heroes, that if you really had known them or read their biographies, even, you'd realize there's also incredible weaknesses. But all I ever got presented was the best side of all the best Christians and all the best heroes, and I tried to be every part of every one of them, and all I did was beat myself down. It's something to watch even in our Sunday school with our children. We put hero after hero after hero, and unlike the Bible, you realize how the Bible puts the feet of clay out there? We never put the feet of clay, you know? We're all enamored with a David who would rise up early to wait upon the Lord and all of these sort of things, and we just kind of leave out the adultery thing. We're, we're, we're enamored with Moses, the great leader. We lead out the little trips of depression and the little anger tantrums that finally his third one, God said, dude, you're not even getting into the promised land. That's it. That the truth of the matter is every great saint of God walks with a limp, and God draws straight lines with very crooked sticks. But we keep presenting all of those crooked sticks as absolutely straight, and then we put them in front of everybody and say, why aren't you like this? And they walk away beat up. Circling back again, what is the one thing that we all can do? Obey. We all can't be Martin Luther. We all can't be Calvin. We all can't be Mother Teresa. We all can't be, but boy, you read the stuff, listen to the stuff, you just get guiltier and guiltier. And the more you do that, the more you walk away from the simplicity i love what jesus said he said come to me those of you that are weary and heavy laden you're just burdened and i will show you what it means to be really weary no he says come to me and he says my burden is what light and my yoke or my steering guide is easy and whenever we have a spirituality that defies that, not that there aren't times of persecution, not that there aren't times of hardness, but one that tries to create those rather than deal with them when God puts them there, we've left a Lord who said, a smoldering wick I'm not going to put out. I'm going to fan it back to flames. And a person who's heavy laden, I'm going to take off some weight. And when they follow me, It's easy. I want to tell you, that's a spirituality that works for the average guy. And it's a spirituality that brings obedience. And best of all, it's one we can do. And we no longer talk one thing and live another. We talk one thing and we live it. My hope and my prayer for you is that's where you will live. And my hope and prayer for you is that's how you will minister to the people God has given you the privilege of impacting their lives. When you walk away, it should be, "Wow, life got easier, God got clearer, and obedience got stronger." Thanks, and God bless.
1: Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you very much. You know. Uh, Larry and I were talking yesterday, and and we were talking about business books and whatnot, and he said, you know, the seminal work of most business business books that are written is Peter Drucker's Effective Executive. I think in many ways, those of you who call the well home have found, in a sense, my seminal text. Uh, I have so appreciated Larry and have gleaned for the last two and a half years a ton of wisdom. You know, similar sayings, similar perspectives, a similar sense of God-honoring jadedness to the establishment and yet an all-out passion for the things of God. And So I appreciate you, buddy, for your mentoring. Thank, Thank you sir. so much. Uh, one of the things that I want to, uh, to mention to you, uh, Larry has uh, taken a lot of these uh, insights and put them in book form. And there are several books that he's got, some of which we don't have here. He, he has written a book early on called Unity Factor. That deals really with the development of healthy leadership teams. Our elders have worked through that book, and uh, he's got several insights in there that have helped us. You can pick that up online. He's got uh, another one that is out called Sticky Church that uh, is actually doing real well right now, and uh, a book really primarily about how to to take uh, the back door of a church and help close it. The whole thrust of it, of course, is relationships. We tend to lose that, especially in church. Uh, he's got another one coming out here in April called uh, 10 Stupid Things Christians Believe. 10 Dumb Things Christian, 10 Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. You can tell I'm not one of those, apparently. that's uh, coming out in April. The one we've got here and we asked him to speak on is his book called Contrarian's Guide for Knowing God, Spirituality for the Rest of Us. It is a fascinating read, uh, especially if you are a, the consummate over-churched person who grew up in church just assuming that the contemplatives drove the bus, uh, you'll love the book. Uh, it's typically $14. We've got some here. They're available at the iHub. Uh, $10 if you've got cash. If it's check or uh, credit card, it's $11. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. And, and for those of you who call this place home, you know we don't do that. We don't pub books. We don't do that kind of thing but uh, this one has impacted my spiritual life. And for those of you who've picked it up, you felt the same freedom I felt as you've worked through it. So we've got those available. So we're going to step into a break. I'm going to invite Jeff to come, buddy, and, and give us some logistics. The books are available out at the iHub. Uh, Larry's going to do a breakout session, so he'll still be here if you've got a question for him. But I uh, wanted to make sure you knew these were available out there. Jeffrey?